Morrison's cost of living crisis can't wait for budget night, Malinowskis on path to victory in South Australia, Putin's war, and the good news is solar-powered water. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, and joining me from the lovely harbourside city of Sydney is the great, the glorious, the audiobook best-selling Van Batham. How are you, Van? Hello, Benny. I miss you. I miss you too. Um, Van, lots has been going on this week, and I appreciate that you're in Sydney because you have to have uh, some medical things done with your mum. You're obviously still very unwell, uh, so I know all of our listeners are thinking of you and your mum at this time, and we really appreciate you taking the time to do the week on Wednesday this week. Yeah, thank you. Um, All these people do get in contact with me about the health of my mother, and I'd just like to report, um, I'm sure my mother wouldn't mind me telling you this, in June, my mother was told she had two months to live, and that was in June. So now it's March, and she's exceeded all expectations and I'm quite sure it's because of all the well wishes that she gets from um, her proximate fans and I'd just like to thank everyone for, for being so kind to her and me. She's a bit of a marvel, my mother, and um, I'm very proud of her. Well, that's excellent news to start the week on Wednesday this week and, of course, we continue to do incredibly well You know, the listeners of The Week on Wednesday have shot The Week on Wednesday right up the charts, continuing to break record numbers of downloads every month. More and more people are supporting us on our Buy Me A Coffee slash uh, Week on Wednesday. That's buymeacoffee.com slash Week on Wednesday if you want to contribute and help us get the word out to more and more people. Uh, All of the money that we raise through there does go into advertising, does go into the show. Uh, So, you know, if you're you're interested in continuing the show, please do show your support there. And the advertising really makes all the difference because the audience for the show is growing, which is wonderful. And we say to people, we understand that not everybody has money that they can drop into the cup, and that's fine. If you want to help the show, tell a friend. Share a link. Absolutely. Yeah. The number one thing we can do is share the message, talk to friends about it, talk to work colleagues because, of course, on this show, on this podcast, unlike most podcasts, really you just get me and Van discussing what's going on and what are the big things that are happening for working people in Australia and sometimes around the world. This week, of course, there's a huge focus on the increased cost of living pressures. Yesterday, Van, the Australian Union's President, Michelle O'Neill, gave a presentation at the Australia Institute where she showed some interesting stats from the ABS data that said the average Australian worker is $832 worse off at the end of 2021 than they were at the start. And to make matters worse, in some some jobs, some occupations, the situation is even worse. Yeah, um, I'm going to list these because... It's just extraordinary. So the average worker is $832 worse off at the end of this year than they are at the beginning. Healthcare and social workers are $967 worse off. Transport workers are $1,497 worse off. 
Education workers are $1,362 worse off and people who work in admin are $1,185 worse off. And Ben, I want to put this in context. We were told when the pandemic kicked off in earnest, before the vaccines had been invented, when we were all literally cowering in our homes hiding from the virus, that those who were part of essential services like healthcare, like social work, like education, like transport, like admin, people who had to leave their homes and do the work, these were our heroes. These were heroes who were keeping the economy functioning. And that's true. These were the people who were making sure that we could be fed and, you know, warm and own furniture and have things fixed and all the things that we all needed during the pandemic. And yet these are the very professions that have been left the worse off. I'm trying to square that morally, Ben, and I'm struggling. I don't think I can support this morally. Well, look, I don't blame you, Van. It's pretty stunning stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the lead up to the election. Obviously, in you know, somewhere around 12 weeks' time, there'll have to be a federal election. The budget is due in a couple of weeks. This kind of data, this kind of information really reinforces what you and I and, and people we know have seen and are experiencing. Like this this actually hopefully helps some people make sense of the disconnect between the kind of, you know, rosy feel-good story that Morrison and Frydenberg keep kind of pu- trying to push with, oh, unemployment's down and wages will go up and people are better off. And, you know, we'll have labor force figures tomorrow and undoubtedly unemployment will be down again. But what this shows is that the the neoliberal economic model, which we talked about before, is really broken. You know, if unemployment is at record lows, ben, I don't think we say broken. I think we say it doesn't work. It yeah, is that's right. A fantasy. The neoliberal yeah. economic model only serves to redistribute wealth to people who are already wealthy. It does not trickle down to the rest of us. In fact, we are going backwards. Well, clearly, because the other thing that these ABS data showed was that prices have gone up 3.5%. So people are worse off, wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. And and this idea that will come out again tomorrow about, you know, well, unemployment is down and we're, you know, more people in work. Well, 2.4 million Australians are in casual employment and more than 865,000 are working two or more jobs. Yeah, does that look like prosperity to you? Because that doesn't look like prosperity to me. It, 865,000, that's almost a million people are working more than two jobs. And as we've mentioned on this program before, the more jobs you work, the less amount of money you are likely to earn. Isn't that a fun stat? It's such a bizarre inversion of the kind of propagandist, you know, rosy neoliberalism that Morrison and Frydenberg like to portray. And it's been interesting this week too, because in Victoria, the state government has clearly had enough of waiting for the Commonwealth to step in and fix this problem around casual work and people working more than two jobs and has has learned from the pandemic. I think everybody, except for liberals coming out of New South Wales, it seems, have understood that if people are casual in the workplace, and they get sick, they're going to go to work. If if they're not going to get paid to stay home and isolate be, because they're casuals, then they're going to go to work. So Victoria's announced this sick pay guarantee for casuals in, in highly insecure industries. 
really is trying to address this symptom of mass casualization, people having to work multiple jobs, people going to work sick. And you'd be surprised to hear this, I'm sure, Van, but the Morrison government has condemned the Victorian government for doing this. Oh, I'm so surprised. Treating working people as if they are people, not merely working units. Uh, I, I just, like, it is so obvious that these people are disconnected from the reality of the economy they have built. I envy the luxury of their lives. So I'm going to just tell the story. I've told this story before, but I tell it all the time. So I worked in hospo. I don't come from money. I mean, my mother is grand, but she's not loaded, alas. <laughs> And I lived in England for a long time where I wasn't entitled to be on any kind of welfare payment no matter, you know, what situation I was in. Okay, I knew the deal. That was mine. But I worked in casual employment because I was there when the Conservative Party got elected in 2010 and all the jobs that I'd been doing in education and everything else, they just disappeared overnight. So I went back to working in hospo. And I my shifts sometimes didn't finish until... 11 o'clock at night and I'd be rostered onto work at 7 o'clock in the morning. So I spent a lot of time sleeping in a wine cellar wrapped in the coats that patrons would leave behind so I could make sure I was at work on time the next day. There was a, a unusual amount of snowfall at the time I was working. It was like something out of Dickens. I was living in a bedsit apartment that I shared with my boyfriend at the time and like literally walking to work in the snow to work extremely hard physical labour in, in a bar and sleeping in a wine cellar when I had to and the rest of it. I've never been so sick in my life. I have never, ever been so sick. And I just had to keep working. So I would dose myself up on the kind of keep yourself awake medications that they sell at the supermarket in Britain because their labour standards are so bad and they are appalling. There are zero hours contracts where you just have, if you don't turn up, you're fired, that's it. You have to work the hours that you're given. And like my whole body was just absolutely wrecked. I got so sick, I ended up pyrexic. For people who don't know the meaning of that word, that's when your body temperature becomes so ridiculously high that you start, essentially you start melting and hallucinating. And I was seeing things crawl out of the walls. I had a really good friend who lived in London who didn't work far from the bar where I worked. And she came in and she had seen me working and she was like, you are so ill. I am taking you back to this apartment. And I had one of the longest nights of my life, hallucinating, freaking out. And she made me go to hospital the next day. I was in hospital for days. I was so ill because I had just worked through this flu and I had taken the painkillers and the rest of it. I shudder to think about how many people I passed that flu on to. I, I, I yeah. working in hospital, preparing food, and of course I was very careful. I always wore gloves. I did whatever I had to do, but like it was one of the most visceral experiences of my life. And I remember the things I hallucinated when I was that sick. It was. And then it's interesting, right? Because in the UK now they have taken steps to improve labour standards. You know, if if somebody is on short term contracts, they can't be rolled over forever. If you know you get redundancy pay on on short term contracts now, um, I'm not sure about whether zero hours contracts still exist there or not. But you know, they certainly don't have the rates of casualisation that we now have in Australia. You know, it, it seems like other parts of the world are starting to learn some of the lessons. And as terrible as the experience you went through was. There are now people 
right now, right around Australia, who will be going through the same sort of thing even today, you know, a decade plus later. Oh, it's just, I'm sorry, I've just gone back there. Like that's 12 years ago now that was that particularly bad winter with the snow. And I just, I, I just cannot believe that people are expected to work in those kind of conditions. I think what's happened in Victoria is extraordinary. I think the commitment to paid sick leave five days a year. The thing that really frustrates me, Ben, is that, you know, we have all this talk about product productivity and we need to improve Australian productivity and, you know, we've got to have these greater outputs and the rest of it. Well, productivity is dependent entirely on your workforce, on their health and their morale. You can only be productive if you are functional. And the idea that we have created mass casualisation in Australia, 40% of Australians are in insecure work. It is amazing. Like we've mentioned on the show before that in Germany when it hit 20%, it was deemed a national crisis and tripartite discussions were being had between government, business and unions to solve the problem. And yet in Australia it's just completely out of control. And Scott Morrison and the Liberals and their buddies, their donors, think that things like a sick pay guarantee is outrageous. What well, are oh, just how absolutely outrageous. And I'm like, how do you how do you understand productivity? What do you think that human beings are just like limitless production units and things like health and, and morale don't matter? Like Well, it does it does seem like they just don't think about it at all. And I can draw a picture. You can't lift as much if you are sick at work. You cannot pour beers as quickly. You cannot mop the toilets as fast as fundamentally you really would like if you have a fever so bad that you end up hallucinating and end up in hospital. And then I think what this also tells us is the importance of unionization because we know that when workplaces are more unionized when the, when more people are in their union in a workplace the rates of casualization drop and you see that at an industry level at a sector level you see that at a workplace level that when people are in their union you, the power of your collective to say no we're not going to accept the casualization of our jobs we're not going to allow you to use labor hire or whatever it might be to undermine our job security people are less likely to be casual, less likely to be trapped in that scenario. And, you know, the work that unions are doing in this space obviously is about addressing some of the underlying issues as well as supporting this Victorian government initiative, which I would call treating the symptoms, right? And and so I would say to people, join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, W-O-W, to, to join your union to be part of that systemic change, you know, address the core root of the issue. But also we need government action on this now. We're seeing major corporations like Qantas unlawfully outsourcing its entire ground staff, entire workforce on the ground who did the baggage handling. It was deemed unlawful. They still haven't hired, they still won't hire them back. You know, this is this is now requires government to do its job and that is to protect the working people who are the citizens of its country. Morrison's just not interested. He's not going to do it. So the Victorian government, you know, to, got to give them some credit, trying to deal with the symptoms of a problem that they don't have the power to fix by themselves. Uh, but, you know, we can fix this as a collective, you know, through unions and also obviously through the election. 
Yeah, and we have to because this is unsustainable. It's like working when you're sick, you know, like it's unsustainable. If you keep working when you're sick, you're going to end up in hospital. Uh, If you keep voting for governments that let you work while you're sick, you're going to end up needing hospitalisation, I think is is the fundamental rule here. I'm sorry, this really depresses me. Like I said, well, I have such let's a talk about the happy memory. Stuff. I just want to do a shout out to our comrades from Hospo Voice. Hospo Voice are the dedicated um, union community for Hospo workers um, under the umbrella of our friends at UWU, which is the United Workers Union. And they've put out a really good video today. Ben and I have both shared it and it's worth watching. And just because, I mean, I really, I admire how staunch they are. I'd love you all to check it out on our social media feeds and give them some solidarity. But also, if you know anyone who works in Hospo, tell them about Hospo Voice. Tell them that there is a dedicated union channel for them and their interests because it's never been more important to be unionised. Yeah, absolutely. And Van, look, I want to... You know, I appreciate that there's some, you know, this is all heavy stuff, right? Increasing cost of living, you know, casualization, wages are, wages are going backwards. But, you know, Albo was out today, today on the Today Show talking about how an Albanese government will lift wages, reduce childcare costs, bring down vehicle costs by encouraging electric vehicles, bringing uh, domestic supply chains online. You know, and Morrison was out. And and he really copped it from the media. This was sort of interesting from my observation of this. Morrison normally gets a pretty clear run in the media, particularly Murdoch-owned media, particularly more right-leaning media. But today uh, and then over the last little while, I've seen him start to cop a few more uh, a few more knocks on the chin. You know, he he's been pulled up uh, on radio over in WA. He was trying to announce a some new facilities and really ripping off a bunch of labor policy about electric vehicles and batteries. And you've spoken about batteries before and our capacity to build them. You know, it's taken him, you've been talking about this for years. It sounds like Morrison may finally have listened to you, Van. Um, so there's going to be money. It's, it's going a to go shame you can't all see just the look of, I can only describe it as wry ironic shock on my face. Well, the money's going to mining companies, but notionally it's supposed to be going into um, renewable energy batteries uh, and uh, electric vehicle uh, component manufacture. We'll see how that plays out. But Morrison was pulled up on, on this concept that, you know, he's mismanaged the economy. He mismanaged the rollout of JobKeeper uh, he's mismanaged the increasing costs of living around fuel. He hasn't done enough to help people uh, when it comes to wages. You know, he hasn't stepped in on uh, in the disability support sector, for example, and said that yes, they'll back a wage increase. He hasn't stepped in on in childcare and education and said they'll back a wage increase. But that, in actual fact, the only sort of things that he's talking about doing to help with the cost of living uh, is to do things like maybe in a couple of weeks when they do the budget, they'll reduce the the tax on tap beer, you know. And- I remember this from student politics, Ben. Really? I remember, oh, yeah. I remember this from whenever there was a Liberal club on campus, 
they would always run a cheaper price of beer ticket in student union elections. It was like their one policy. And every single time they were absolutely convinced that a cheaper price on beer was what would get them elected. And it was interesting because I used to run a lot of campaigns. I ran the University of Wollongong like a personal socialist gulag for years. Ho, 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 that's a joke. And um, it was things like defending your right to a quality education was was what overwhelmingly got us elected. But I remember the leaflets for, oh, yeah, vote for cheaper beer, the, the uni bar. And I'm just, when I saw this the other day, that Morrison was going to make beer cheaper, I was like, are you the campus liberal club? <laughs> Dear God, is this all you've got? And I hate to say it, Ben, but I think the answer is probably yes. Well, I mean, it's funny you mention it because now that I think about it, I, you're I thinking remember, about it at Deakin too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can recall many a conversation uh, with stakeholder groups who were interested in the low, lowering the price of beer, uh, yet often they wouldn't wouldn't bother to turn out to vote. <laughs> but you know, it, it's interesting because this is this is an idea that. It has been panned f- across the spectrum, right? Like you and I, obviously, no fans of Morrison, right? No fans of Morrison. No, not really. I don't. But, I don't think I'd really describe it in those terms, Ben. <laughs> but you'd have to say Andrew Bolt, uh, who is as recently as yesterday was was saying how good Morrison was, has come out and slammed this idea, uh, saying that we need to get people into offices and factories, not into pubs. Georgie Dent, who runs the Parenthood, um, again, you, you know, Georgie is a fair-minded person, but I'm not someone who, um, when I look at Georgie's statements in the past, you'd say is pro Morrison, um, fair-minded certainly, but not pro Morrison, uh, has said that really he should be prioritising a cut in the price of early childhood education, and and I've got to say I totally agree with Georgie Dent on this. You know, the we know from the pandemic that when the government stepped in and made early childhood education free, that it had a substantial impact in reducing the cost of living and it increased the amount of people making use of early childhood education, which we know in the long term has a benefit for the children who get better educations, but also society who have more well-educated and productive uh, members of society. Like comparing that to saving, you know, 20 cents off a pint, it's it's chalk and cheese. Like the investment value here is really phenomenally outweighed. You, you, you put the money into early childhood education. And frankly, if your government can't convince people that investing in early childhood education is worthwhile, but you believe you're going to convince them that cutting the price of just tap beer, just tap beer, not bottles or anything else, this is just for tap beer, is somehow the electoral winning strategy on which you wish to build a nation. I think you've got to really examine your priorities and also how much credit you give the Australian people. I'm just, I'm done. I'm so (laughs) done. I just can't even, it's just... It's a parade of Polaroids, of photo ops with Morrison in costume. It is a cabinet bereft of ideas. There is no national unity. There is no future vision. 
there are no solutions to the problems that we face. The fact that, and I do want to acknowledge that Susan Lay actually won her court case uh, this week. A court case was brought against the government to deem that they had a duty of care towards children and future generations based on their environmental management and the government won. The government won the right to say they have no duty of care in how they manage the environment for future generations. And that, I mean, it really sort of sums it up that they just don't think that's important or something that they sh- should have to consider. You know, there's a wonderful quote from Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who said, I don't want you to make portraits of me. I don't want there to be presidential portraits. I want there to be photos on your desk of your children and I want you to look at it every time you have to make a decision. And we don't live in a country with those kind of values operating at the level of government, even though I reckon the majority of us have those values at the level of, you know, our homes and how we run our lives. I just, I can't bear it. Like, I'm sorry I sound so down, everyone, but Scott Morrison's still the Prime Minister. The election hasn't been called. We know what they're going to do with the budget. We know that it's going to be free lollies for all you know, all stakeholders. We know that there's going to be micro-targeting, thin slices of voters and the kind of pork barrelling, rorting that goes on all the time. I hope Australians are strong enough to resist the temptation of voting for these people to get even bigger bathrooms at the local sports club or, you know, whatever the the electoral treating is. Um, it's just it's. I want this country to go somewhere I want us to seize challenges. I look at the war in Ukraine and go, you know, these are people who are hanging on, watching everything that they love and value get destroyed. You know, there's a feed of some of the most beautiful buildings in the world just getting levelled by Russian artillery fire. And I just think in this country we have the opportunity to build things. We can build new infrastructure. We can encourage new industries. We can create these incredible monuments to our people and the things, when I say monuments, I mean systems that work, expanded public transport, job opportunities and localised manufacturing and science and research and arts and culture and media and entertainment, all of these things are within our capacity and we currently have Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister. It's, it's debilitating even considering that. But I think, Van, one of the things that I, I really want to stress to you and to everybody listening is that I think the tide is actually turning in this country, you know, and you know as well as anyone how little stock I put in opinion polls after what happened in 2019. But Yes, you, know, you, did, you did become slightly cynical. <laughs> slightly cynical. A bit of cynicism uh, into the old... Davis and optimism, I've got to say. But there is there is substantial reason now, not just from the polls, but also from the way the public debate is shifting, from from the fact that people are not buying into the the Morrison photo op, that he does seem to have nothing more than a rerun of 2019 where he got to pretend to be a different person on every day. That people are actually quite outraged at his attacks on the personal physical characteristics of Anthony Albanese, that, that that the media has, you know, gone him over that. That even Barnaby Joyce told him not to do it. You know, that there does seem to be a shift. And, and I have to say, Van, you know, that shift is palpable 
obviously in the polls, but also in the discussions in the media, in the discussions that we're having online. I think, you know, to your credit, the work you did with QAnon on and on, that, that book, I think, you know, I'm so glad it's a bestseller because so many people have spoken to me and I've spoken to you about how it's opened their eyes to things. You know, we were in Adelaide recently and, of course, South Australia is going to the polls on Saturday and, you know, South Australia looks set to throw out a first-term Liberal government and throw it out by some margin. You know, I mean, again, if the polls are to be believed, and it's a big if, you know, Labor's ahead 56-44 in South Australia. Yeah, that's that's a pretty convincing margin. That's beyond margin of error. So just so people understand how the, the polling works, it, it is within there's when they talk about within margin of error, with electoral polling, it's around 3%. So the the polls may be saying 56-44, but the margin of error means that it's maybe 53-47. And to be fair, 53-47 is still an absolutely stalumphing victory. Yeah. Like it's when one of the things that happened in 2019 was that we were told Labor were leading, Labor were leading, Labor were leading, but it shrank to the margin of error and it turned out the error was larger than people realised. And, yeah, the idea that these kind of figures are coming in for Melanowskis and the Labor team in South Australia is pretty convincing that that's going to be quite, um, quite a decisive victory. That's what the polls suggest. Of course, all kinds of crazy things happen. 20% of Australians make up their mind on the day who they're going to vote for, which is why I'd like to underline this bit, maybe use a highlighter as well. You having conversations with your friends and neighbours and workmates and relatives, even though the last category can often be the most problematic, they're really important because when people go into that ballot box, the only person who knows how they're going to vote is them and what's on their mind, what preoccupies them, what values they're drawn to can be like a really contained decision. And the more discussion we have about what we value as a society, and I mean as a united society, like I find it, I find news from America is always extremely distressing because they are just totally polarised and it's because of their system of voting. Because they have voluntary voting. Whoever wins the election is the side that gets the most people out. You know, so you end up with presidents who don't represent, uh, you know, who don't represent the nation. They represent their electoral base. That's how you get someone like Trump, and that's really dangerous. And in Australia, it doesn't work like that because we have universal enfranchisement, also known as compulsory voting, in which everybody votes. We have a situation where we can really communicate, like, shared national values at the ballot box. Is it time to change government? What will that government look like? What will their determining priorities be? And that actually has an effect on the other party as well. Like it's a really important strain in Australian democracy for both of the major political parties because we have a majoritarian system, which means we are always going to have a two-party system because large coalitions form to represent the two contesting ideological points of view. But like historically in Australia you had, I just want to put this in context, the Curtin Labor government during the Second World War won the greatest electoral victory in Australian history, 58% of the vote to the Labor Party, absolutely crushed, won control of the entire Senate, all right? There's never been a period like that. 
and Curtin ran the war effort, built the Australian welfare state, you know, created pensions and um, instituted transformative full employment policy that ensured government guarantee that every Australian would have the opportunity to have a job, mm. which was how we were able to absorb 2 million migrants from, post, from the post-World War II period without any increase in unemployment because we built an empl- like an employment system, big state government, big departments and big public services in a big state in order to accommodate them. We became one of the most prosperous societies in the history of the world. And the thing is that that model that was built by Curtin was so popular with Australians that when the government changed after Curtin died and then we had the Chifley government, which was also Labor, and then Menzies got elected again, um, Menzies knew that whatever his own ideological impetus was, he couldn't dismantle that system because Australians loved it. Australians love full employment. Australians love job opportunities. They loved welfare. They loved the idea that a big state was there to create opportunities and for them. And, you know, this is, I, I just see Morrison drifting so far away from what Australians really want. Well, of course, we're seeing that now in microcosm in South Australia. You know, Stephen Marshall is a relatively inoffensive Liberal leader. Compared to Scott Morrison, he's the kind of guy you might even have over for dinner. But the government that he leads is so out of step with the values of the people of South Australia. It's plagued by scandal, resignations, conflicts of interest, defections. Uh, the way they've handled COVID and the health system means that Peter Malinowskis, the Labor leader, is five points ahead in, pref- in terms of being preferred Premier. And after just one term in office, the Liberals are likely to lose government. It's pretty uh, unusual for a one-term government to, to get thrown out, particularly after, you know, South Australia had Labor for, what, 16 years before this liberal this liberal time, and now, you know, it's it's really clear and obvious that health is such an important issue in South Australia. the The ramping of ambulances and people have died in the last week. There's been two or three people who've very sadly passed away, and of course, you know, Stephen Marshall has publicly apologised. He seems very sincere about that, but people look at that and they look at the scandal-riddled government, all of the defections and the, the incompetence and and they go, look, you might be a nice enough guy, but you can't manage this for us. And I think that's a microcosm of what we're starting to see federally, certainly you know, in the way people in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, WA, and I think to a degree, yes, even in Queensland, are viewing Scott Morrison. Well, this is the thing. There was a really brilliant article in the Globe and Mail, which is a Canadian newspaper the other day, a commentator who had the most perfect line, which was, clown time is over. Like, the world has serious problems and it, and approaching politics as if it's some kind of entertainment is dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of being entertained by political spectacle anymore. These are serious times with serious problems. There is a land war in Europe involving a nuclear armed power. Uh, the North Koreans were firing missile projectiles today. The Iranians have been kicking off against the Kurds again. Like there are 
theatres of military opportunism that are opening up. We have the the expected and unexpected effects of sanctioning on Russia. You know, in Australia and everywhere else, we're facing the reality of climate change. There have been floods. There have been fires. There, all of these things are happening around us. These are not separate from politics. They are the result of politics. Clown time is over. And wherever you line up ideologically, like surely the recognition has to be made that at the end of the day, you need competent people running the show. Scott Morrison is not that person. Like we have seen these unbelievable images coming from Queensland and northern New South Wales of entire towns levelled by water, like the most extraordinary destruction imaginable. Mm. People left without anything and there were photos of Scott Morrison using a broom on a basketball court. Like and I just don't think it's sustainable. Like you compare Scott Morrison to someone like Zelensky who is, you know, in Ukraine, he hasn't left Kiev. He's in the presidential palace. He's shooting videos of himself to let all of the Ukrainians know that whatever they're going through, he's going through too. And that's the leadership the world is crying out for. You know, it's one of the reasons why there's been such a, and there's been a lot of analysis about this, about why world support has, and popular support across the world has absolutely rushed towards Zelensky in Ukraine because we recognise that need for leadership in serious circumstances. The hilarious irony of all of this is that Zelensky spent the formative years of his life as a comedian. He's famous for playing Havana Geller on a piano with his genitals. Like there are all, he's the voice of Paddington Bear it's, in it's, Ukraine. It's interesting you raise that, Van, because I think, you know, uh, him, him playing the piano in, in that way reminded me of Morrison, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, that Morrison's own department, putting out that um, that logo this week. The Women's uh, Network logo. Women's Network logo. That looked like a phallus. Looked like a phallus. And you go. Like a phallus. Although I do acknowledge some people thought it was a tampon and other people thought it was boobs. And there was a small but significant sector who thought it was a woman represented by boobs running away from a dark alley. I'm like, all of this is bad. Everything is bad. Yeah. Every single connotation of of this logo is bad, 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 bad. None of those things suggests that the Morrison government has learned about the seriousness of the issues facing them. None of it goes to, and we've talked about this and we'll keep talking about it until it happens, the 55 recommendations of the Respect at Work report need to be implemented. Paid family domestic violence leave needs to be implemented. Sexual harassment in the workplace needs to be considered as a health and safety issue. These are things governments can do. They are things governments have been recommended to do by independent experts, independent panels and independent reports. And yet Morrison wastes his department's time having, I can only imagine how many brainstorming or ideas cloud sessions they had to come up with that. Of course, that logo has now been pulled. And as you say, when you compare that to what the world is witnessing in Ukraine and Zelensky being with his people, having meals with his people, you know, refusing to leave Kiev. Like, how many attempted assassinations have they stopped now? Three, four, five? Oh, it's something ridiculous. It's, and they're it's laughing huge, at right? And yet, yeah. and yet, you know, and I think it does mean the clown time is over. I think it has put, you know, when you look at the polling results in the UK that are coming out at the moment, people are done with the clown Boris Johnson. 
people in Australia seem to be done with the clown Scott Morrison. You know, I'm not saying we want a, a wartime leader. That's not. I'm not saying we need that kind of khaki approach. In fact, anyone who listened to the weekend rap will know my views on arbitrary spending levels and and waste in defence, uh, and that I'm steadfastly against those sorts of things. But we do want genuine leadership, and I think what we're seeing now with Putin's war is a genuine leader who believes in his people, who believes in his country, and is prepared ultimately, it seems. Meaning Zelensky, not Putin. Yeah, yeah. meaning Zelensky is prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice himself against a man who only believes in himself and only is interested in his own view and his own comfort and his own power in Putin. And the world is going, actually, we want more Zelenskys and fewer Putins. We really do. I think the whole world sees that kind of leadership. It'll be interesting to see what happens in America because Joe Biden is on the receiving end of the most ridiculous, just like beyond bonkers nonsense propaganda campaigns that come out of the American right. The American right, I'd like to point out, who are openly praising Vladimir Putin you know, the autocrat dictator of Russia who's just invaded a sovereign democratic country. And yet Biden has shown such considered reason measured leadership in what is a potentially disastrous military situation. Like Well, it could I mean there are so many sensible decisions that have been made by the Biden administration that are also moral, that are not abandoning Ukraine. They passed thirteen billion dollars worth of aid uh, from the United States to Ukraine today, they have not entered into a conflict that could, you know, rally Russians behind Putin defending from the Americans. It's so well judged and well measured, and I just hope that the respect is there in the voting population to see the difference that having an adult in charge actually makes. Because it is hard. I mean, you know, we talk about politics all the time on this show and and in circles that we move in with our friends and coworkers and things. And politics is is really hard. It's hard to get those decisions right. And having the right mentality and mindset of being inquisitive, of trying to get the best possible information, of thinking through the consequences, of of mapping it out in terms of what it means for people, real people and real lives, I think makes such a big difference. Whereas you know, we see leaders like Morrison or Johnson and certainly Putin who really only map out a strategic out, a pathway to a strategic outcome that suits them, whether it's an electoral outcome or a military victory or whatever it might be, a parliamentary game that they're playing. You know, they're only interested in, in what they want rather than what's actually going to benefit people. Because I want to talk. A bit about Putin's war, Van, because I know you and I are both getting questions from people about how is it that Ukraine has lasted so long? Russia is supposed to be this great military power. Um, you know, sanctions, is it the sanctions? What's going on with those? Are they working? And now, of course, there's discussion, as you say, around what other actors in the world are doing. The US is obviously doing an aid package. Um, there's been some interesting reports out of India as well. But but Van, broadly speaking, you know, it looks like Putin's starting to run out of time 
the, the longer that the Ukraine resists, uh, the Ukraine army and military resists, the, the, the harder it will be for Putin to actually succeed in his invasion, whether he actually demolishes all of the cities of Ukraine or not. He, he may well find himself even unable to pay his, pay his own army. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Um, the Because I have been asked this question a lot with people. I mean, a lot of people are just like, how is Zelensky still alive? I'm well, not sure I understand. <laughs> that's my that's my watch not understanding um the situation that we have is that russia has got a long way on bluster for a very long time and the performance of leadership from putin has been very convincing russia is a nuclear armed country it does have a very large army obviously uh, a lot of its cold war infrastructure military infrastructure still exists and the attempts by putin to reaffirm uh, what is now Russia as a superpower in the old Soviet style have been consistent. Like there have obviously been, there's been decades of planning that have gone into this uh, expansionism and imperialism around uh, not only Ukraine, but they tried this in Georgia. Obviously, they did this in Chechnya and creating Russian spheres of influence to extend the borders. I mean, people talk about it in Australia. It's I think it's difficult for us to imagine the idea that you would have like a, a, a thousand year like national identity, like Australian identity is up for grabs every day. We're constantly trying to build it, you know, as this settler colonial country that's trying to deal with its genocidal past and yet has all these aspirations towards equality. Like we're still having conversations about what being Australian means. In Russia, that's a longer conversation. It's And a lot of analysis talks about, you know, Putin's expansionist ambitions in this very long historical trajectory about, you know, Russian imperialism and empire building. Yeah. The problem is that that kind of bluster and, you know, that sort of vainglorious notion of empire, like you don't want to get high on your own supply, I think is the fundamental thing that we're learning from what's going on with the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is that Putin, former KGB agent, has spent decades consolidating power in Russia to the point where he is inarguably a dictator. Like he is not subject to democratic forces. He cannot be removed from office by vote. That's not how Russia functions. The promise of 1991 and the idea that democracy would come to Russia is dead. And the oligarchs who originally, you know, um, allies of Putin who were bought off by these great gifts, you know, this fire sale of what used to be owned by the state in Russia that was like given to these men overwhelmingly who had no money but who Western banks were happy to lend them the money at, at fire sale prices to take over monopoly institutions and great commodity houses and the rest of it. They uh, Their fortunes have been twinned with Putin that he started imprisoning oligarchs who didn't tow his political line a few years ago and, you know, the message communicated is you you buffer my bluster or you get whacked in the slot. Or you go to Siberia. Or you go to Siberia. Obviously they're silencing of critics. This week Navalny, Alexei Navalny, who is the de facto Russian opposition leader because obviously it doesn't function as a democracy, so opposition as we understand it, it's more of a cerebral exercise than a practical one in many ways. Um, he got a like decades plus 
sentence for crimes against the state. He run he's been making videos detailing the level of corruption and graft that goes on in the Russian state that trails back to Putin. Like it is ridiculous stuff. Where Putin is, and this is what's what's fascinating sort of militarily, is he is surrounded by sycophants. His power is so absolute, his control of the oligarchs, you know, his control over the state, his control over the army. People serve at his pleasure as the autocrat and if they disobey him or present him with 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 information that he does not like, they very often die. I mean, it's a marvellous coincidence, you know, this sort of plague of illness, um, quite violent illness that besets people who tell an autocrat what they don't want to hear. And, of course, what that means is he's not actually getting fact-based information. So Putin's vision of this expanded Russia where Ukraine would be returned to the imperial fold is not actually based on an assessment of who Ukrainians are or what they stand for or the values of that particular community. And Putin apparently gave an interview saying that he thought that Kiev would be taken over. It would take three hours for the government to fall. The Russians didn't expect Zelensky, who's insanely popular. I mean, Zelensky won his election with 70% of the vote. That's even more than John Curtin, my hero. Like, extraordinary. that they that the information that was coming to Putin was that oh yes the Ukrainians want to be liberated by the, from the Ukrainian government they want to return to the boundaries of Russia you know this is all this is you know this is going to be no problem we've just got to you know roll the tanks in and it'll all be done and dusted and there's some analysis that says that the Russians may have believed this on the basis of um, what they saw happen to the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan that. When Americans went into Iraq and Afghanistan, those regimes fell really quickly, like really, really quickly. Yeah. But there's some hugely important differences. Number one, the country that Putin's invading is a democracy. People really like democracy. They get really yeah. invested in it. It gives them a sense of power and purpose and identity and generally don't want to trade that to live under the oppression of an autocratic dictator, which is, wow, crazy. Who knew? Um, also, the Ukrainians have been trained by the US military since 2014 when Putin started acquiring territory. Um, one of the mistakes Putin made was that the Russians did acquire territory by working with separatists who were Russian speakers. I mean, there are parts of Ukraine that are Russian-speaking towns. But what's happened, of course, is that the bits that he picked off in 2014 where, you know, this sense of Russian identity mm. was really solid. Well, they've been out of Ukraine for the past uh, eight years. So the Ukrainian identity has actually changed in that time where this, you know, aggressively Russian minority has not been part of political discourse. It's actually created a more solid and concentrated sense of Ukraine amongst the Ukrainians who remain within the territorial areas that, that Putin did move into at that time. Um, the other issue, so you have... The person who is leading this, and there's no doubt that Putin is leading this. It's not rogue generals Mm. or the army. There's no collective decision-making taking place in Russia. No, anyone who's seen any of those uh, photos of the the conference tables where there's a a huddled group of of cowering generals or cowering ministers at one end and Putin at the other, I think pretty pretty quickly gets gets the image and the message that uh, there's one person who makes the decision and everybody else whose job it is to implement it 
Exactly. And in terms of what's going wrong for them militarily, they're not invading Iraq. They're not invading a country with a poorly trained military. The Ukrainians are highly trained and they're not invading a country where the people being invaded don't quite know what they're fighting for, which was certainly the situation in Afghanistan and Iraq, deeply divided communities, some uh, Saddam Hussein or Taliban loyalists, but other like powerful opposition forces, warlords, you know, factional tribal division even. But these were quite um, chaotic societies. Ukraine's not like that. It's a democratic system of government. It has its problems. Um, we all do. But mm-hmm. the idea that you would attack after the sort of magnitude of victory that Zelensky um, secured is is not, I mean, that's not good analysis. But more than that, the Russians, of course, have a massive morale problem. The armies that they're using are full of conscripts, like you are conscripted for a year of national service um, in Russia. Not all of the those soldiers they've deployed knew where they were going or what they were doing. They thought they were going on manoeuvres, but actually they're invading a country. All of Russia's information is poor because they're just getting pumped propaganda. A population that has no democratic rights, that where people get arrested um, and charged for up to 15 years for protesting, are locked out of a conversation, are not stakeholders that you have to engage. Like democracy has these really great safeguards about doing the right thing because democracy obliges everyone to be part of the political conversation about what a good idea may look yeah. like. And I think, and Van... Like I, I think the, the the thing here too, right, is that you know Putin needs eight hundred thousand troops to control Ukraine. This is sort of where we get to, right? With all these factors in play, analysts are saying he needs eight hundred thousand troops to control Ukraine. That would be the entire Russian military. Uh, he's losing four hundred, possibly up to seven hundred soldiers a day. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, it was losing five a day, and that. That bled the Soviet Union to the point of having to withdraw, and some say sped up the collapse of the Soviet Union. Absolutely, I mean, the, the because oligarch- remember, every individual, like sociologists, have this model of looking at social influence. Mm. Every individual knows 150 people, like at least. Yeah, and that's 150 people who know that you have died. So let's let's do some maths. I mean, I won't do that immediately. It's not that kind of day of the kind of impact that those deaths are having socially. Well, it's only so much that propaganda can sustain. 60, that's 60,000. Like if it's 400 people, it's 60,000 people in Russia a day who are, who are being touched in some way or another by, by this. Many of them, of course, will be um, fellow soldiers, you know, who will, who will have lost uh, comrades in arms. It, it's a, and many of them will have relatives in Ukraine. Like it's a very impossible situation. And and now, of course, the sanctions are really biting in to Russia. The oligarchs have lost billions in assets. The EU's cut off supply of luxury goods now to Russia as well. Including cigars government. and champagne. Ooh. Like, and no Russia's, fun parties in Russia anymore. Well, Russia, Russia's attempt, well, Putin's attempt to kind of, you know, turn the tables and impose sanctions on the US has been met with some mirth, right, and some and some some hilarity because, firstly, they got the sanctioning wrong and they've sanctioned Joe Biden's long since passed away father, not Joe Biden Jr. That's one of the best press conferences I've ever seen. People should check it out because you know U.S. officials don't have bank accounts in Russia. They don't have holiday homes uh, in Odessa. This is not a. This is you know not something. 
that will impact US officials. But of course, we know Russian oligarchs do try and get their money out of Russia because it's not their money. It's the Russians' money. It's the people of Russia's money. And they, and they want to steal it. And to, to steal it properly, they've got to get it out of the country. Um, Van, I really quickly want to talk about the sanctions piece because I think you've outlined really clearly the problems that Putin has militarily and culturally with his invasion and why you, you, Ukrainians are able to put up such a stiff resistance. But the sanctions piece is now, um, I think, so important internationally. But we're starting to see uh, reports emerge about the impact in places like India. So India is a country that imports 80% of its oil. It's not, even though it is a large economy and a very large population, it is not one of the world's wealthiest countries. And the, the GDP per capita is still relatively low. Oil prices have gone up 40% in the global market. And there's now talk that India might actually do deals with Russia to buy Russian oil and fertilizer, in fact, which is obviously something they need for their agricultural sector as well. The sanctions can cut kind of both ways to some degree, can't they? Yeah, they can. And it will be really interesting to see what happens with India. Um, or just the whole sanction, we're sort of in new territory because the sanctions have moved really quickly. And I agree with them. They are morally right. What their impacts are going to be, is interesting. I'm definitely in the optimistic camp that particularly sanctioning Russian oil and gas will be extraordinary um, in terms of building momentum behind adopting renewables and grassroots-based energy supply, which is safer. Um, that Russian aggression means that we won't be looking at nuclear as a solution because it is dangerous and it only takes, oh, you know, an illegal invasion of people to essentially have the the weapon of nuclear terror by occupying mm. nuclear power stations, which is exactly what has happened in Ukraine. The Russians have been occupying nuclear power stations, um, which is totally terrifying. Um, and, I mean, there are opportunities to look at things like supply chains, play, economic systems where inequity and exploitation have taken hold because of the number of global players and lack of transparency and accountability. And, you know, there are lots of nooks and crannies for exploitation um, and abuse to hide. And this is an opportunity. There was a, an economist on social media yesterday talking about this is an opportunity for us to clean up dark money, to yeah. look at how Russian oligarchs stash hundreds of billions of dollars. And Putin's one of them. Like Putin is apparently yeah. possibly the richest man in the world. He's stolen so much money from the Russian state and sequestered it where? In Delaware, in um, Panama, in, in, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, in the Caymans, like all in Monaco, like all of these um, tax-avoiding places where you can stash money and not have the government coming after you and not have the transparency of accountability. Like there's a real opportunity here for us to look at a globalised financial system and what that means and make it better and fairer and ensure the populations of people aren't, you know, robbed of their opportunity by autocrats and oligarchs. But, I mean, where we are now is that there is an invasion in place. Putin is running out of time because the sanctions are devaluing the ruble. Even if um, India buys that much oil, it may not be enough to save the Russian economy. It may not um, because of the cut price and because of just the level of sanctions that are going on. And analysis is suggesting that Putin is not going to be able to pay the army 
and that the longer that this drags on, like all the Ukrainians have to do is resist and keep the Russian army bogged down. And in many cases, they're literally bogged down because it is mud season. Yeah. And the miscalculation of thinking that they it'd all be over in three hours has led Putin into a place where vast amounts um, of the Russian army are literally bogged down. There are problems with desertion. There is yeah. zero morale. There have been reports of Russian soldiers selling the fuel that they're transporting for logistics on the black market. And because they're bogged down and trying to besiege these cities, that means you have really long logistic lines. The Ukrainians are not yeah. going to feed them. The Ukrainians are not going to give them any petrol. And that the actual war plan means that essentially what they're counting on is uh, – is to crush the morale of Ukrainians, bomb so many buildings, kill so many children. They've started killing journalists that the Ukrainians will give up and go, this is too hard. But it yeah. doesn't really look like that's happening. And the longer this goes on, the more expensive, wasteful, difficult and politically dangerous this becomes for Putin. Well, I think you're right. And I think, you know, even I think it does start to raise those broader questions, as you've mentioned, around around dark money in in the world around how supply chains work i mean india has has been reducing its dependence on russian military supplies over the last 10 years it's reduced them by 53% uh, you know the world needs to be peaceful and stable i think we're starting to see that how we interact with dictatorships and allow money to flow around the world does actually have an impact on peace, stability, and prosperity uh, here at home, and regardless of how far on the other side of the world it may be happening. You know, it's it's getting closer to us um, by virtue of the fact that you know India needs oil. India needs oil. It, that's where it is currently. We want to get. The whole world to renewables. India is not there yet. It can't afford to pay forty percent more for oil. Uh, you know, one one Indian uh, official said uh, that they shouldn't have to pay the price for some for a fight we have not created. You know, that does raise those sort of questions. Hopefully, yeah. Putin falls over very quickly. Ukraine is resisting. Hopefully, the cities of Ukraine are not bombed into obliteration uh, and we can start to really think about how the global order actually functions in the interests of all the people of the world. And how democracy is a use it or lose it exercise and how democracy is a superior system of decision making. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is the thing. One of the pieces I was reading today was talking about you know the Gulf Wars and the size of the protest movements meant that th those Gulf Wars operated very differently to how they could have gone. I mean, all war is disgusting, mm. certainly, I believe that. Um, but, yeah, like it, it is it is participating in that democratic dialogue, representing how you genuinely feel on an issue yeah. that makes most positive contribution to your society. And we can, all, we can all do that by joining our union, getting involved in the democracy in which we live and expressing our solidarity for those democracies that are facing down autocratic invasion like the people of Ukraine. And there is good news, though, straight up and down good news. Oh, this is so great. Let's let's hear it because I think this is fantastic. Yeah, this is just, this is literally amazing, especially in the context of environmental degradation from climate change. Um, a group of researchers uh, who are 
based at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, of all places, have worked out a way of combining um, the technology of hydrogels. So hydrogels are... um, they are gels that absorb things but don't break down in water. And we use them all over the place. We use them in everything from sanitary pads to blister pads. And they, like I said, they absorb um, liquid but they don't break down. And the researchers from this university have worked out a way of using hydrogels, like they're a polymer, Mm, um, mm. of creating like a, a structure that uses a solar panel and obviously gets quite hot in Saudi Arabia yes. um, in the desert to essentially create the heat required for a hydrogel to release the water that's absorbed. So they're using hydrogels to absorb water from the air, from air vapour, mm. and then using the heat produced by a solar panel and a fault of, by, I can't say the word, charge. Um, I'm sure somebody will correct me on how to say it. You know what I mean? Um, and using that to water plants. So they've been growing spinach in the desert. And it's extraordinary technology because it's portable, it's, it's, um, it can be community-based, it literally creates a solution for um, degraded land by creating a place where desert can grow, like uh, can be food sustainable using these hydrogels solar technology to grow plants. It's and the, fantastic. And the, and the hydrogels improve the the solar voltaic panels efficiency as well. And and Van, this just reminds me of something. I can imagine all these scientists and engineers laughing at us for not being able to pronounce this word. Yeah, but, you know, it I reminds me. I hope added to your joy today. It reminds me of. Photovoltaic. Uh, it reminds me of the, of the moisture farmers in. Star Wars, don't yeah. you think? Just a little bit, you know, the people on Tatooine. That's what it is. It's moisture yeah. farming. It's Star yeah. Wars style moisture farming, and they're doing it in Saudi Arabia. And they're using, using solar clean, panels. Yeah, using solar panels, and they're the size of like a student desk. It's fantastic news. Fantastic yeah, and the news. scientists are working on making it more and more efficient. So the idea would be that you could <laughs> theoretically, if you had one of these units, grow mm. plants anywhere. Yeah. Look, that's I think that's great news and really strong positive news to end the week on Wednesday with. Look, we do want to give a shout out to all of our great supporters who've jumped onto buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. We give a shout out to our cadre and our extending the reach supporters uh, every week. And Van, do you want to do the honors with the cadre? Sure. Here we go. You ready, Cadre? I'm going to do this as fast as I can. All right, hang on. Got the list. Got a list. And that list goes. Cadre, Leona Gibbons, someone, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Lee Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson slash Red White Blue Lou, Kylie Phillips, Diana Blyton, and Brash Daniels. Then there are our Extending the Rich contributors. They are. Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah and K2E, Bo Sullivan, Elian and Andrew, 
Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kia Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, Katie Wood at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Pauline Bate, Erica B- Pizzuti, Megan Weckett, and Moira Louise Hawker. You are all superb. Thank you so much for making this show possible. And of course, everybody who likes, shares, everybody who is our Buck a Week member uh, contributors as well, you know, everybody who does the work in the workplace, talking about these issues with their friends, with their family, with their co workers, you know, that's what makes this show work. We love hearing about people who've joined their union or talked about the show with friends and family who've then joined their union or gotten involved in what's happening in the workplace, what's happening in their community. At the end of the day, we will always make the week on Wednesday free to download, free to listen to. And it's the people who chip in, whether it's a buck a week or 20 bucks a month, who help make us heard by even more people. And so we really appreciate everybody who does that. That's the week on Wednesday for this week. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday for the weekend wrap. Less than 20 minutes, get you started for the week ahead. And Van and I will be back next Wednesday. We will. And Ben, of course, will do the weekend wrap on Sunday as he always does. Love you, Vanny. Love you too, baby. Bye. Bye.